Welcome to Voices from the Past, a mini podcast from Plymouth Plantation. We're taking you behind the scenes with the museum's historians, curators, artisans, and interpreters as they prepare to stage the 1623 wedding of Plymouth's governor, William Bradford, to Alice Southworth. Today, I'm speaking with historical interpreters Doug Blake and Kyle Brennan, who portray the Bradfords in the 17th century English village. Welcome to our podcast. Hello. Hi. So you both are historical interpreters at Plymouth Plantation. Uh, What brought you to this very unique career choice? Uh, For me, my mom actually worked for Plymouth Plantation many years ago, and so she used to be an interpreter, and I kind of grew up here. And when you grow up on the South Shore, you know this place pretty well. And I've always been a history nerd, and I like dressing up and pretending I'm somebody else, so that's fun. I have a similar sort of experience, although none of my parents worked here, but growing up on Cape Cod, came here a couple times as a kid, uh, studied history under um, people that used to work here at UMass Dartmouth, so had a well education for this time period and was very sick of what I was doing, originally not using my degree, and was looking for places to work, and actually it was my wife, who's not from around here, who suggested it, so that's how I got involved. So we have people on the site who are from all over the country. We've got folks from the Midwest, folks from the South. Um, We even have a few international. Uh, We have one real English person on our staff uh, who's now a dual citizen. Uh, So what do you think it is about living history that is so attractive as a career choice for for certain kinds of people? Um, I think that it makes it more of a personal experience because reading a book and getting kind of like kind of an idea of what it was like but actually immersing yourself in it really gets you to fully appreciate what everything was like it kind of transports you to that time whereas if you're just going to a museum and reading plaques on the wall you you get some sense of it but not like you would actually seeing it happen and talking to the people which is really cool and to add on to that it's sort of like if you read a script it's not the same as seeing it acted out or performed, um, it brings it to life, so by being able to bring these contemporary sources to life, it, I think it helps a lot of people. A lot of people don't necessarily learn by reading, you know, they have to see yeah. or experience it to really have it connect. Have you, have, have you had an experience where you read something on the page, it didn't make sense, you couldn't understand what was going on, and then there was a scenario on a living history site or you brought it to your interpretation in your house on any given day and suddenly it made sense in a way that it never had before? A couple things, yeah. A lot of it is also just practical stuff. You know, the sort of things that you wonder, like, why would anyone do it this way or why did they do it that way? And then when you're actually doing it, this makes perfect sense. And other things too, like you see paintings and the clothes. And now I'm more comfortable wearing... 17th century clothes sometimes, you know, when I wear my regular pants, I often think they're falling down because our modern waistline is so low. Yeah. It really does change. Being a living history interpreter really does change your perspective on the modern world as well. Mm-hmm. I think one of the best things that we have the opportunity to do here at Plymouth Plantation is bring the past and the present together into really interesting conversation. Um, how do we talk about renewable energy or food sheds or sort of sustainable lifestyles. I think there's so much that we can learn from experimenting on our living history sites. Yeah. And one of the one of the great things that I love is that 
our job enables us to go to a source and as Doug, as you said, bring, and bring it to life. And that's what we're doing for the Bradford wedding in two weeks. We're going to take this very brief two paragraphs of text and explode it into this into this big event. And you two are sort of are going to be the stars of this event as the Bradfords. We will be traveling back in time a year um, to 1623 when Alice arrives on the uh, on the Anne or the Little James Anne on the Anne. Uh, Kyle, what do we know about Alice before she comes to Plymouth? Um, we know that she's from Somerset. We know she was baptized in Rington. We know her sisters. We know her father and her uh, mother's name. Her father shows up in Amsterdam in 1600. And then Alice shows up in Leiden in 1613. But we don't know where she was between when she was born and when she shows up in Leiden. <clears throat> her mother actually never comes to Leiden. She never she stays in England with another sister. Um, and we know that Alice marries uh, Edward Southworth in, it's around 1613 or 1614. She has two sons, uh, Thomas and Constant, with her husband. And then after 1617, she is in London with her husband and her two children. And then he, Edward dies in 1622, and she comes here with her sister and her sister's husband and their children, and presuming that she leaves her two sons behind in Holland. At least that's all speculation, but they're not with her when she comes here. Do we know whether, uh, Doug, do we know whether Alice comes specific to marry the governor, uh, William Bradford, or? We don't know <coughs> specifically, but the timetable yeah. for the whole thing would lead one to believe if it wasn't sort of planned out through letters or something, they were really quick to act. Yeah, it was, what, they get two, married, three like, weeks? Three weeks after she arrives, yeah. and legally you have to call the bands at least two weeks prior, so it was either... It was either you want to come here or, and I'm making motions with my hands, which you can't see, but <laughs> I pick her. Okay, cool. Do you want to get married? Yeah, all right, great. So, I mean, they knew each other before. Yeah. They're all part of the same church. And it's a second marriage for both of them. Yeah. So this wedding is going to look a lot different than yeah. other weddings we do here at Plymouth Plantation. It's also going to look different because it's a diplomatic event. It's not a, it's not a country wedding the way that we've portrayed weddings in the past, um, and Doug, this is a big moment for William Bradford. There are 120 native men coming. Massasoit comes with his wife, uh, four other kings. We're not sure who they are. Um, how is that impacting the way that you're preparing as an interpreter for this event? I sort of view this wedding almost as if Thanksgiving part two. It's the same sort of situation. They just went through a really tough time. You know, when the Anne and Lily James show up, that's when things start to flip from being we're half starved, you know, everything's really dismal to maybe it's going to be okay. You know, the harvest comes in, they have the rain that saves them from drought, you know, things are starting to look up, and they have this wedding, which just like in, you know, Thanksgiving, or what we call Thanksgiving, you know, the natives show up, people are able to maybe give a collective, and it's also very important politically. So it shows all these new people that are coming, you know, because there's immediately discussions of what do we do with food, what are we going to, you know, are we feeding them, are they feeding themselves, all this. He says, look, we have all this nice food, everyone, like, look at all of this. Mm -hmm. The natives are coming, everything's safe, you know, we're going to reaffirm what we already set out with Massasoit, 
after all the trouble of things that go down in 22. Um, it's a new re reaffirmation of, of their allegiance, kind of like how, you know, Thanksgiving was in the beginning, I think. That's how I'm preparing for it, you know, thinking this is really diplomatic. Probably was also really relieving for him. You know, I always think about if I had to try to be the governor and a farmer <laughs> and then take care of my own house, it'd be really hard. That, yeah, it's a lot of responsibilities for one person. So to be a married person again, I think, would be both really good for him politically. Mm -hmm. You know, married people, that's what you're supposed to do. But also, just on a personal level, when I try to bring it to life, it's like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> He's not, and we don't know whether he had any servants or anyone helping him out, so... Uh, William Bradford's first wife dies, um, we presume, in the first winter. I yeah, think very the early on. description is she disappears off the ship. We're not sure what this means. There are a lot of interpretations of it. So he has essentially been a widower for two years, two very difficult years. They're trying to develop agriculture here. Um, and so, Kyle, what do you think, for from Alice's point of view, she's coming into a very difficult situation. They've had a drought. They've had an explosion of violence at West Augusset. Mm -hmm. uh, things are not looking... The prospects for Plymouth are, are not looking very good. And what are you bringing to Alice's um, perceptions of the wedding, bearing that in mind? I can't imagine what it was like. Cause she had been on a ship for three months. She had just come from London where her husband's dead, and she's coming to marry somebody who she knows, but, you know, her husband just died a year ago to a wilderness when she's lived in cities basically all of her life and all these natives are here she's never really probably never seen them before now there's over a hundred of them and the native king it's you know and marrying a governor i cannot imagine how intimidating that would have been for her and yet, so presumably everyone's kind of getting along but it's still nice showing yeah oh absolutely but internally oh yeah she was probably panicking i'm i'm, I'm gonna Play, like outwardly nervous looking but inwardly just kind of freaking out because it, it's so much pressure on her to not mess up and yet she's not in the source at all no Emmanuel Altham who writes the letter yeah. doesn't doesn't even mention her by name nor does her her husband-to-be doesn't mention yeah. this wedding at all either so what is what challenges does that pose for you as a historian as a historical interpreter well, with anything, women just aren't really mentioned. They're kind of in the sideline, and you just have to... There are books out there that talk about women's lives during that time, so you just kind of have to give her this cute, like, humanity kind of... You just have to give her... She was a person. She was a mother. She's here. She left her sons behind. But she's marrying somebody who's really important, and you just... I'm just inserting how I would feel into it, just replacing myself, but also keeping in mind the time. You know, she's going to be subservient to her husband. She's going to be quiet. She's going to let him talk. She's going to let him do his stuff. But I'm just trying to take as much of how I would react, but also keeping in mind that I'm a 17th century Christian woman at the same time. But And not only a Christian, but a separatist. And yeah. a wedding for separatists is going to look very different than... yeah than certainly weddings today, but even weddings among their contemporaries who were still followers of the Church of England. But even, like, thinking of what her wedding might have been like in Holland when she got married the first time, um, it's going to be completely different from that as well. It is a separatist wedding, but it's with 
over a hundred native people in a wilderness. So it's just there's nothing to compare it no. to. No. Well, I'm I'm curious. Um, we've talked a lot about the the challenges that are going to come up on the day and how you two have been working through your preparations. Uh, what excites you the most about this challenge? Because it really is a challenge taking on an enormous moment in Plymouth history. Uh, it's a big day. It, what's it got you the most excited? There's a lot. I mean, I love the weddings when we do them. Any event that we do, it's just there's an energy usually mm-hmm. that is in the staff because it's, you know, just as much for us as it is for anyone else, you know, just like how, you know, for them it must have been a nice, like, oh, this is a nice day. It's nice for us, you know, it's a change of everything, it's not the everyday sort of thing, it's like if you have, like, an ice cream party at your office, you know, it's like, oh, we're having a wedding, it's going to be great, Mm -hmm. and there's things that happen that you don't get to do all the time. We'll have a full village as well, which, so we'll have everybody on hand, so that's always nice. So it's just, it'll be very fun in that regard, and that energy passes on to the visitors, and they usually get pretty, I mean, some of my favorite days that I've been here working thus far have been weddings. It's just, there's something about that day, just like how when actual Thanksgiving, there's just, it's just, you're just like, yeah, let's do it. And, I mean, it's the Bradford wedding. That's going to be cool, all the natives here, interacting with people that you don't usually get to interact with and character. Yeah. It'll be fun. I'm looking forward to the food. The food is usually, is usually really good. I always I talk, love the food. I talked to Kathleen and Tawny, and they were talking about the menu and how much work goes into planning a menu and how much preparation not only the foods waste staff does but our site interpreters and I'm curious Kyle you've been to a lot of weddings mm-hmm. um, the housewives all chip in everybody yeah. does their share of the work uh, do you know are you going to be cooking on the day or I doubt that I will be um, I don't think I don't think so um, I don't really we haven't really talked about who's cooking what but I imagine they'll be cooking in the village that day but I doubt that I'll be doing I'll probably just be freaking out in my house and I, somebody's going to be cast as my sister so I'll just be talking to her and freaking out. Some things never day. change. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's 1624 or 2015. Yeah. I want to talk for a minute just about the idea of marriage in the 17th century. You're both married in real life though not to each other mm-hmm. um, and so I'm curious from your own experience playing married pilgrims but also being married in real life what commonalities do you see and what are the major differences for our listeners? I think being married in real life really helps portraying a, a, to the public a convincing marriage because, you know, while 400 years has passed and the role of women has definitely changed, even within the marriage today, there's still, you would think that I mean, these, these are real people. They're, they're going to have the same kind of interactions. But I also have to keep in mind, I'm the subservient wife. <laughs> I need to keep quiet, you know, and... He's yeah. the governor. He's going to talk. <laughs> but that's almost the sort of, I mean, some of the best interactions with other married couples. You can see that connection we were talking about earlier when you just do even just a little, you know, like, again, I keep making motions, but, you know, it's sort of a, a side eye or something. When you're, a wink you know, and a nod. Says you know what I'm yeah. saying. Well, right. between us, because, like, being both married and similar type people, you know, the same sort of situations that arise with my wife probably arise with uh, Kyle's husband and the sort of, we're all similar toward people, so when I say something like, that causes Kyle to say like, <laughs> and they can see it and sense it and they're like, that's the same way it is in yeah. my house, or yeah. you're like, 
you know, you always say little comments about basically, because women are subservient, but the practicality of being married, even if it is that you have legal power over your wife, is listen to your wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, too. Well, when we say that, when we talk about women being subservient, it's the idea that they they have no independent legal identity. Exactly. That they have assumed, they've gone from their father's legal identity to their husband's legal identity. But they're certainly not powerless. Exactly. No, no they're definitely not. And, like, people always say what's, you know, decisions made in the household. And it's really depend. just like today, uh, it really depends on the couple mm-hmm. and the interaction between them. But I always say, in as Alice Bradford, you know, it's always my husband's final decision. He listens to me, but that doesn't mean I don't expect him my as my, you know, I don't expect him to use my opinion as the final thing. It's his own decision. But, and I think when interacting with visitors, there are moments, most of the time they can really relate, but then you just throw in this one thing that really twists it as a 17th century marriage that kind of throws them off. And they're like, oh, wait a second, that's right. Not things. quite the same yet. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a lot different. Ha <laughs> ha, joking, joking, unless it's not joking. <laughs> you know? I know we talk a lot about, you'll say, my husband's house. Yeah. They'll say, where do you live? Oh, my husband's house is down the street. And throwing in these small moments where the visitors are reminded that this might feel very familiar, but it's, and it, it is very familiar in a lot of ways, but it's not in yeah. a lot of really important ways. I know one of the, one of the issues that we as a staff are constantly um, percolating on is how we use vocabulary in a way that is sensitive to Native history, but that's also historically accurate. Yeah. And I think we, we approach the gender issues with the exact same sensitivity, that talking to modern audiences, if we want them to engage with us, you do have to figure out where that line is and how far can you push it, how far can you showcase the differences and where's the moment where the visitor is going to either be so offended they're going to stop listening to you or they're going to check out because you've reached their saturation level I had this one interaction with this woman two years ago and when I started talking she was so angry with me and she was just she she was just going at me like about how dare I say that I don't have the same right as my husband but I got her to a point where she saw what I was doing was explaining the viewpoint of women in the 17th century and this is how life was and this is how they viewed stuff and finally she got it and I got to her and then, I don't know, it was so, I, the one of the coolest, ones are always. oh man, one of the coolest moments I've had as an interpreter was just this angry woman who was so mad at me and finally getting her to really understand that worldview of that time period and understand please don't be mad at me I'm just I'm just an English woman you know listening to my husband oh it's awesome <laughs> and I, I think the new world and the, the wilderness that they're living in really does challenge yeah. these uh, these preconceived ideas about about marriages because they're not living in London managing a shop they are living in the wilderness they're felling trees they're growing corn they're trading with native people this is a very different relationship that is i would i would venture to say more egalitarian in work distribution and importance of both parties than you might see in the middling sorts in in london or any other urban center i'm curious since you brought up this interaction with a visitor 
Uh, what what are Plymouth Plantations visitors the most curious about? Where you go to the bathroom, <laughs> <laughs> and which your is walls. actually a very good thing to know. It is a very. Good, we not, always joke about it, but like that's honestly a really that's probably the question I would question. ask. That's yeah. where if You're, I go to a museum, it's like where where do you? Everybody does it. Just I mean. like there's certain everybody poops. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone wants to know about it. I mean, yeah. I think that's a legit question. That and you know, in our current role. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way, Cop, but at least for me, a lot of the time, as soon as they find on the governor, they, there's, like, certain topics that they want to hit on. Yeah. Like, what's the craziest thing that's happened that you have to deal with? What are your relations with the natives? You know, it's like those ones instantly get veered into that. But that would vary by who you were playing. As the governor, Doug, what's the most difficult question you've been asked? Oftentimes it's... It's the sort of situations where... It's not necessarily difficult, like, you know, not difficult, I don't know the answer, but there have been a couple times where it's been, I had to really think, and it's also, I find the hardest thing to portray, which is difficult for a lot of different people, but, like, there's a innate hypocrisy in a lot of things, especially, yeah. and so, like, well, why did you banish that guy last week for doing exactly what you did? So to try to convey to them that whole idea that, like, I thought I was right, because mm -hmm. you know, William Bradford obviously did without just coming across as like a I clearly know I'm wrong and I'm just blowing you off kind of thing because like, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that they do is pretty hypocritical yeah it is but they don't feel it that way obviously mm -hmm. so well and as role players the two of you are in the historical moment as historians we have the luxury of hindsight so we have the whole story right in front of us we know where it's going to end we know how they're going to get there but one of the greatest challenges I think for our, our interpreters is that you you have to know what's going to happen and not know what's going to happen at yeah. the same time because I'm sure that in the banishment of John Oldham uh, in that case in 1624 of course William Bradford thought he was right but we also know because we're able to look and see how all of the stories play out we can say well I don't know this, this seems a little eccentric or out of character <laughs> But it definitely, it does, it does pose a challenge. But Kyle, what about you? You mentioned this woman who was an avid feminist. It sounds yeah. like very angry with you for not sharing her belief system. Do you get a lot of visitors like that? Um, not really. Surprise, I don't know. Not really. I, it's, I find a lot of my job is convincing people that 17th century people weren't crazy. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what we do is trying to <clears throat> explain it's all about worldview trying to really get them to understand where we're coming from and why mm -hmm. we did what we did because they look at you like you have three heads why do you like especially what we wear in the summertime like, oh, why yeah. do you wear that why do you always keep your hair covered why blah blah I forgot blah that question are you hot yeah are you yes. hot in those clothes yes we are hot in those clothes <laughs> but honestly it, it, yeah, it's just convincing people that I'm not crazy. That's a lot of... Which I understand, because... Viewing at it from a modern perspective, yeah, these people seem kind of crazy, but viewing it as a 17th century person, they're... Well... And like you said, yeah. it's all about worldview. You don't have to agree. Yeah. And probably shouldn't agree with a lot of the things Some that they thought were good. Some people agree, and it kind of freaks me out. But yeah, but <laughs> it's like, don't if agree you can me. convey to them why they thought that, not necessarily that they were right. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of the issues that come up with between English and natives and things. Yeah. 
that's also one of the really difficult questions I have because people just come to me eventually you get sent up and up and up and they're like well, you know why did you steal the land why did you do this and yeah. it's to, to come across to say like that was really wrong but this is why actual William Bradford might have thought that mm-hmm. yeah so you don't necessarily agree with them but you can at least see where he came from so they're not just crazy people yeah or not just straight up jerks which some of them were but to convey the idea that because things were really different yeah they were really different but also really similar but and I think that's where people get thrown off. When they see us in these circumstances, they see us as real people, but then we do such crazy things, and they're like, why, why? Well, I think it's that people are people no matter when they were people, yeah. but culture changes, and culture affects you as a person, but you're still going to feel love, you're still going to feel hate, you're still going to, f- if you get poked, you will bleed, yeah. <laughs> you know, no matter when you were born. I, ta- I know when, when we do education programs, we talk a lot about how education for young women often included them going off and, and being servants in someone else's household. And I have so many young girls who get very visibly upset at the idea of being sent away from home at a young yeah. age. And I usually at that point will turn to them or to their mother and say, well, do you get along really well with your mother right now? Usually they're about 14, 15. <laughs> usually there's a chuckle. Yeah. They'll roll their eyes. And I say, well, you see why a mother might send... Uh, her children to be sort of cared for and taught by someone else. So it's, it's all about finding those, those avenues. I think a wedding is a, one of these great examples. It's an avenue that allows us to, to talk about how different things are, as you've been yeah. saying, but also how similar things are. They, uh, this is love. This is a marriage. It is a state wedding. Um, but there are people. There are egos in the mix. There are broken hearts. And it's all going to come to play uh, on August 15th uh, when we do this um, recreation of this historical event. Uh, last question before we let you guys go. Uh, favorite part of a wedding, 17th century or 21st? Um, 17th century, the food. 21st, the food. I just like the food. I agree with food. I like camaraderie. Oh, yeah, Thank hanging God. out with people. That's always fun. At my own wedding, although it was much more of a blur because, you know, I was actually getting married. In any 17th century wedding I've gone to, everything just seems a little bit better. Even people you don't necessarily get along with all the time, mm-hmm. everyone's having a good time if it's a good wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, people playing games, people just being happier. It's a, it boosts everyone's spirit, usually. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for our episode of Voices from the Past. If you want to learn more about our 1623 Bradford wedding, visit us online at www.plymouth.org. And to see Kyle and Doug as Master and Mistress Bradford, join us Saturday, August 15th for the reenactment of the Bradford wedding. Thanks for listening.